Welcome back to A Fresh Story, the podcast where we have conversations about brave decisions to start over again. I'm Olivia. And I'm Jenny. And we're so glad you're here today. Oh, hi there. Nice to see you. Fancy meeting you here. (laughs) Fancy meeting you here down the hall from me on our Zoom. Um, How are you today? I'm good. It's almost lunchtime. I'm definitely hungry, but I, yeah. I've really been struggling with what to eat lately. Does anybody else have the struggle? I just I don't know what to eat. I, don't I know feel like the more I'm invested in work too, the less I know what to eat. No, we've been head down, heads yeah. down in work. Heads we down. literally don't stop working. Yeah. I Jen just uh, Marco polled me and told yeah. me to stop working. And she's like, I know that you work all the time, We work, but maybe take a mental break. And I said to her, isn't it funny how mental break and mental breakdown are just one but I will say, oh, that's true. Uh, we did take a break yesterday, but we did go to Southdown Coffee, which we talk about a lot here. And they have a drink. I may have mentioned this in the podcast this before. So I'm a, because I'm going to talk about why I love this drink so much. Okay, okay tell me. Because growing up in, in diet culture in the early 2000s, we were like told, you know, you had two options at Starbucks, right? You had unsweetened iced tea or black mm-hmm. coffee. That yep. was it, right? Zero calories for each of them. Yeah. And then you saw all these other people in the world walking around with fancy drinks and they had whipped cream and they had all the things. And it was like sad for all of us with our, I mean, you know. Yeah. And no, you so, just want to enjoy something. You just want to enjoy something. And yeah. so we really don't go to Starbucks anymore. We only go to South End Coffee because we'd rather go to our local support coffee local. place. Yeah. Support local. Um, and they have a drink and they do seasonal drinks and I, I'm obsessed with their seasonal drinks. There's always yeah, something beautiful, amazing. And this winter they have a spicy vegan mocha latte, which I get not spicy cause I don't like the spiciness, but they have a vegan chocolate spicy. whipped cream, yeah. vegan chocolate whipped cream. And so I got the latte yesterday and it's so good. I have an open question to Southdown too. If you listen to this, how much for just a cup of the whipped cream? Cause I would like to buy that. <laughs> the whipped cream I miss is so whipped good. Cream. Yeah, yeah. It's I miss so good. So that's what I've been enjoying. Uh, what's going on with you? Uh, you know, not much. I've been thinking about this um, episode we recorded with Megan Miller, who was so um, lovely and wonderful. And, and we get to it on the podcast, but she touched on very briefly. And then I sort of made her expand on it, that her grandfather um, was union and he was a union stagehand and our like set builder um, and that he, all of her uncles and had worked yeah. at Lincoln Center. And I was like, I, I worked there. I worked there. And it was very exciting for me because you forget about this whole life that I lived. And so I've actually been joking about this week that I feel closest to how I used to feel on show sites when you're heads down and you're like, you need somebody to throw a sandwich at your head and be like, eat this now, because otherwise you won't feed yourself. Um, but I miss those days. You know, I, I loved working, um, at Lincoln center and with all those guys. Yeah. And, you know, I loved working with unions, the union guys, there's really something special about them. I gotta I think- find a union guy and a union guys out there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, like a grip or something like that. And I, I, that's not euphemistic. A grip on my heart. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, it gets to my point of like all of these jobs that people don't think about or talk about all of these jobs that are not typical nine to fives, you know, Megan is an opera singer an opera and singer. that yeah. is really what she does. And, um, she also runs a social media, uh, a marketing, sorry, agency. A marketing agency an yeah. experiential marketing agency, but her passion and her 
craft is opera. And there are so many roots. I think when we raise kids, we tell them like, you can be like these five things, teacher, doctor, vet, you know, secretary, right. Secretary, (laughs) lawyer. And that's kind of it. And then it's like, No, there's so, and then it's like, well, I guess you can go work in an office, this nondescript work in an office, but you know what? There's a lot of people that are on the road. I worked with a lot of those guys, technical directors and grips and stagehands and, you know, uh, guys that do rigging and all of these things. And I'm fascinated by it because you think about, you know, you go to a restaurant, you're like, who are all these people in the middle of the day eating out? Well, they, they have jobs and what do, I, I just want to know what everybody does all the time yeah. and what their job is well, and we what had those a, hours are a, like. A, a great conversation with Megan. She is, like Jenny said, a beautiful energy. Yeah. And um, it was a really interesting conversation, both about obviously her career in opera and her career in marketing, but also she is the mother of a little boy who's uh, fighting cancer. And as a parent, that is, you know, a nightmare. And she talks about how to how she how she turned that experience into her son. It was a beautiful, yeah. beautiful conversation. What a par- beautiful parent she is. Intuitive parenting. Oh, just so, so special. And if you, yeah. you know, and like our kid, you know, we can't protect our kids from everything. No, and that's the worst part. she took a moment that was a nightmare and turned it into this beautiful experience for him. Yeah. And I just think if you are anybody that has gone through anything, or if you're a parent, you just, you don't want to miss this conversation. It was truly a, a wonderful. So, um, Enjoy the conversation with Megan and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to a fresh story so we can keep telling fresh start stories. Megan Miller is the owner of Megan Miller Marketing and co-host of the popular podcast XM Divas. She was recently listed as Disruptor Magazine's top 30 female entrepreneurs to look out for in 2022. Megan is recognized in the nonprofit and for-profit worlds for her creativity, drive, and leadership. She brings enthusiasm for new challenges and creating integration strategies, particularly those that expand a company's reach. We are super excited to have you here, Megan, and I think we connected on Twitter a long time ago, and I'm really um, excited to have you here and hear your story. So thanks for taking the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to talk about the numerous fresh starts, but one in particular. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Why don't you take us back to the beginning of your fresh starts story? Yeah. So um, in addition to um, being an experiential marketing consultant, I'm also a professional opera singer. So a lot of what I've gone through is kind of bouncing between careers. So sometimes I start over as an artist and sometimes I start over as an admin. Um, but this past year, um, two years ago, actually, when I decided to take the jump from my corporate nine to five is to start my own, um, consulting agency. And it took all, you know, that was always my side hustle. I feel like a lot of these companies and podcasts and great ideas always kind of start off as side hustles. Um, we kind of test the waters, make sure what we've got is a thing that people want. Um, so last year we, you know, my husband and I kind of decided like, Hey, let's take the jump. Like there's a demand. There's a, you know, we, we have something, you've got something going here. And, um, October, probably the beginning of October, 2021, uh, I decided to launch my consultancy and I was super excited. And I think I had like two weeks under my belt. Um, and then my son got diagnosed with T cell lymphoblastic lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer. Mm. Um, so we had to start over. Um, and, and kind of figure out 
how to navigate the this new world of going through a medical diagnosis, which at the yeah. same time, still launching the company because it was something that was really important to me to make sure that I kept going because, you know, I, it's not really in my blood or in my way to, you know, just to like leave something hang in there. Um, so it's kind of two starts at once new life with Luke's medical condition. He was only three at the time. Um, oh and then also, um, starting this new journey, um, on my consultancy, um, and having to put my professional opera company or my professional opera career, uh, aside, which kind of broke my heart. Cause I was like really freaking excited to get started, um, performing again. So it was like three fresh starts at once um, <laughs> and just trying to try to like move forward on one of them. Um, yeah, but that was, you know, that was the big, that was the big jump for us. Um, in 2021, um, I would take 2020 any day <laughs> through that year. I'm like, no, I, I'd go back to that. Like, that one worked for me. Um, can you, uh, I'm obviously is your, let's start here. Is your son okay now? What's yeah, going on so with him now? Going, okay. Yeah. So he's going through treatments now. Um, we have until, um, next year. So February of 2024, he'll be done, but oh, wow. I mean, the kids, he's resilient. I mean, yeah. there's, there's no doubt, you know, when people talk about being built for something and not saying, you know, Hey, like, that's a cool thing. You guys are built for this, but he, he's going through everything like a champ. Um, mm -hmm. you know, something I wouldn't be able to handle. I would be such a, I'd be a mess if I was him, but he's, you know, he's going through it and, and he's of all those fresh starts, he is the one that, you know, seems to be taking on the best turn. I mean, in the, the initial six months, it sucked, um, yeah. you know, having to rearrange everything. Um, but we learned a lot about our resilience as a family, um, and what we were able capable of doing, um, you know, having to balance everything. And honestly, as much as I thought it was the worst timing to start a company, it was actually the best. Cause I don't know how I would have been able to do all the stuff that yeah. I did do taking him to treatments. Um, if I didn't have that flexibility. So I do want to go down the road more about your son and as much as you want to discuss, but I yep. come from an experiential marketing background. So I'm curious what your consultancy, what your you know agency is doing and how you consult and what that means. Um, I think one of the things that I want to highlight on here is fresh starts is that like, there's so many jobs people don't know about <laughs> that are really important. Yeah. So if you could tell us a little bit about what you do at your agency, um, I'd be really curious about that personally. Yeah, I love that. Um, I think, yeah, there's, and especially marketing, like you can't even just say marketing anymore. You have to like put your niche in right. front because if you don't, people, it's just such a, it's so know, broad PR. And then there's, yeah. I mean, there's just so many facets of marketing. Um, and I chose experiential marketing to be my focus, um, not just because it was something that I ended up being really good at, but something I really enjoyed doing, like connecting yeah. people um, through relationships, um, creating mm -hmm. experiences, um, before having my consultancy, I worked for Opera Carolina for seven years as their marketing director. Mm. And I realized what I was really doing was creating experiences, selling experiences, not just trying to sell tickets to the opera, but helping people create, you know, let's, where do you guys mm -hmm. want to go get drinks? How do you view the opera on social media? Um, you know, really trying to sell the experience of the opera and not just, yeah. you know, a butt see kind of thing. So what I do with my clients is we walk through, you know, we start with ideation development and really just come up with all the crazy ass ideas we can. Like what is going to be like spaghetti on the wall, whatever sticks, mm -hmm. let's run with it. Very um, out of the box, non-traditional approaches, but how do we create a memory? So what they usually come to me for, I say like my biggest clients are like grand openings, um, immersions into new um, 
into new cities. So like mm. a business that maybe already is thriving in Charleston is now coming to Charlotte. So mm-hmm. immersion um, marketing there and then just events overall. Um, I do a ton of events, usually anywhere from 80 plus to 500 plus people that attend it and creating these experiences for them through the marketing campaigns. So really telling their stories, um, working with the client on how are we communicating this and who's communicating it for us. So you hear a lot about these influencer events. Um, and I think that they are extremely valuable. Um, of course, I always loved attending them, but what's happening now. And I've seen this trend is that marketers are just grabbing anybody and everybody that has 10 K more followers. Doesn't Mm, matter if they were real followers, bot followers. Um, if you know, they're just grabbing them and putting them into a pot and, and sending them to these events. So you go there and you're like, how the heck is this person here? Like, Oh, well, you know, she's this TikToker that has a million, you know, followers, but like, what is she really doing for your company? Right. Um, so what I've really done is created this formula um, to find the right influencers in the mm-hmm. right areas to tell the stories because it's all about, and I call them affiliate marketing um, brand consultancy because it's really creating affiliations. You know, right. I mm-hmm. give them all the contact information for these people um, in hopes that they'll create partnerships beyond what I do um, with them. Yeah. So, you know, we had this really awesome nightclub open here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we invited everybody from brewery influencers to media personalities to fashion. Like everybody was from all over the place. But, mm-hmm. you know, I always say that my sorority sister girlfriend is always my best influencer. She has like 400 Instagram followers, not a ton, but homegirl brings like her entire sorority from yeah. all over the country when she comes mm-hmm. to my events. And it's yeah. like, you know, she may not have the numbers to back up her influence, but she has the voice. Yeah. And yeah. You know, that's something I always spend so much time drilling into my client's head. Like there's now this section in my Excel sheet when I send them the influencers, that's like description of why they're coming. Because the first thing they say is like, well, Brittany only has 400 followers. And I'm right. like, yeah. And then like the descriptor is like the paragraph of like past success metrics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's really kind of what I enjoy doing. So throwing parties and connecting people, but building those relationships. And that's where like the experiential comes into it is, you know, how can I, you know, I'm not in it to just, you know, keep going and have them keep paying me and filling this retainer. Like I would rather just teach the man to fish so he can like feed himself versus having to like fish for him every single event. Right. Yeah. Cause that's freaking exhausting. It is is exhausting. It is. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot with the podcast is that the episodes that sometimes have, you know, yeah. quote unquote, like re- regular people with smaller followings actually get the most listens, right? Because they have more kind of like this loyal following of, of real life people, right? And yeah. we talk about like, you know, we've been in the influencer world a long time right. too, but like real life influencers versus like the online influencers. And that's exactly what you're saying, right? That yeah. These real people that just have these like loyal followings, they they can turn an event, whereas somebody with a bunch of fake followers is not going to do the same thing and won't have the same dedication for the event. Right. And we, yeah, we've talked really about that. Right. No, you go, Megan. Sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, it doesn't really matter if you've got a ton of followers in Wyoming. What does it do for Charlotte? Exactly. We talk about that a lot because Olivia and I you still do run a social media agency. And so we, when we're talking to our clients, it's like, it doesn't we had one client that was um, a med spa in Ohio. And I, we were like, listen, we can do whatever we need to do for you, you know, to get followers. But how does a 
follower in Wyoming help you? That's not somebody that's going to come in. I mean, it's great to have your name be spread wide and far, but you really need to think about why you're doing this. Like your why is the most important thing. And if why you're doing this is to get people to come in, then we need to make sure we focus on engaged, you know, influencers that have a local community. So we very much vibe with that because it's all about the actual quality of the experience, not the quantity of followers. Yeah. Who's going to come back and who's actually going to help your business? Cause yeah. you know, there's, just, there's so much stigma around that and, and there's so much focus on it and it is hard. Like even talking about it now guarantees someone will come in like a month or so. And I'm having the same damn conversation again, you know, because they're, they're bred and they're trained to look for this mm-hmm. metric that really doesn't even exist. And, you know, and sometimes they're like the worst, people too. Cause I mean, there are influencers that charge their services and mm-hmm. I feel in the food and beverage industry, I think that is valuable because mm. they are creating content and they're creating things that the restaurant can use. But right. you know, for someone who is, you know, a beauty influencer, I'm not going to pay them to come to the grand opening of a new restaurant because right. like they're not going to necessarily, unless they're a con, you know, UGC, con- you know, unless they're right. going to provide right. value. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about your career in opera. I'm fascinated. So how did you get into opera? Where did you grow up? Um, wh- wh- how did that all come together? Yeah. So born and raised in Palm Beach, Florida. Um, you know, I lived there for probably about 24 years. Um, started just singing as a kid with no talent. I was like the tree for every like stage. Right. <laughs> Um, but went to, uh, middle school, the performing arts, um, in West Palm beach, Florida, um, and kind of got groomed. So you were a very good tree is what I understand. Well, actually I was a horrible, I was a shitty tree. I I honestly, so when I auditioned, I actually, so the big reason I wanted to go to middle school, the arts was because I was bullied a lot in Mm. um, elementary school for being tall and disproportioned and feet growing before everything else. And, Mm. um, you know, it, I didn't want to go to the public middle school. You know, I wanted to leave all my bullies behind. And at that time, um, they had like magnet programs and things were really popular, but you had to like apply for them, audition for them. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't necessarily like the smartest crayon in the box when it came to academics. So I was like, well, I can't go to like, you know, this middle school that's for like, you know, math and science geeks. So I was like, well, I can dance and I can play the flute. And um, so, and I was really good at them. I thought I was good at them. And so I auditioned and they said, well, you can audition for a third major. And I was like, well, sure. Um, I just want to get the hell out of this elementary school. So whatever you want to audition for, I'll do it. And um, it was a flute audition. So they had me sing. And when the, like, the letter came back that I got in for like vocal, I'm like, are you freaking? No. I'm like, I, wow. I think I sing like whiskers on kittens from like sound of music. It's <laughs> awful. It's like the worst audition ever, but um but I've learned in the years, it wasn't about me having talent at, you know, whatever age 11 or something. It was yeah. about what they could mold. And right. I was moldable. I've learned in my 15 year career as an opera singer, that is my key is that I am easily trainable and easily moldable. So whatever role I need to prepare for or what they need to sculpt me into my voice fluctuates. So that's actually what they saw. So, um, did classical, you know, nothing really big. Um, it wasn't until I got into high school um, and still pursuing singing um, and, you know, college that I discovered opera and I had never even seen an opera. Um, I just had somebody tell me about the music and my 
family is from a musical background. So my grandfather used to work um, at operas a lot in New York City for um, oh. carpentry and stagehand. Um, my grandmother was a Rockette um, and my grandfather um, was a Tony Award winning carpenter. So he they had told me a lot about operas and I started learning them and I'm like, oh, this is freaking dope. I can dress up. I can sing. I can act. <laughs> I can do all one time, like no more choral singing, no more church singing, no more like, you know, black dresses and right. stand. Like I can be, be know, on stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's how I fell in love with it. And it was just, I think I sang it for five years before I even saw my first one. I was in more of them than I had actually sat down. Cause I'm, you know, I'm still like a 22 year old. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to waste my time for three hours. <laughs> I can do in three hours. I can do a lot more than sit at an opera for three hours. Um, but yeah, so I became professional. Um, I had my debut in Palm Beach, um, in Palm Beach Opera Company in like 2005, um, in the resident artist program. Amazing. Um, Minneapolis, sang with Minneapolis Opera Company, um, and kind of went all over the country, um, and landed back in Charlotte. Um, my husband's job brought us to Charlotte, but the beauty of it was, I could go anywhere with my gift. So I was like, sure, you want to move us? Like, let's go. I can take my voice anywhere. I was still yeah. working corporate job in marketing, but I didn't really feel that was really what I needed to put my roots into. Right. Um, so I've been out here with um, Charlotte um, at Opera Carolina um, for 13 years as an opera singer or 12 years as an opera singer. And then um, after three years, they had offered me a position as their marketing director. Um, so I was working a corporate job in marketing and taking a ton of backstage pictures before social media was even really a thing. I was just posting stuff and shenanigans and they were like, can we do more of this? So that kind of led into that career, which then led into me figuring out I can create experiences and I can do this on my own. And, you know, boom, here we are. Wow. Uh, do Would you say that there's a lot, like, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question. The number of opera singers and performers that are able to do this full time with no other jobs is probably very small, correct? It's a niche community. There's a yeah. good, there's a good chunk of us out there that do this exclusively. Um, and not saying that you know that's not in the stars for me in the future. Yeah, you know I'm only 35, but um, you know it it is really hard. And you know I got so I went to school. I went to Palm Beach Atlantic University with a bachelor in voice performance opera. But after mm -hmm. like three two years of watching the opera scene, um, and being a resident artist at Palm Beach Opera Company, I was like, oh, this is like tough. Um, yeah. and like, there's like no, and I have bad allergies, so I'm like, shit, it could be like one al allergy attack and I'm out of career. Yeah. Um, so that's when I got the second degree in business marketing. Cause I was mm. like, oh, I need to have a backup plan. There's, mm. there's no way I can, you know, just rely exclusively on my voice. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a few of us out there that have the double degrees and the second careers and yeah. you know, I am married. So I do have you know, Brent to fall back on, you know, in between jobs and things like that. But yeah, there are people that are out there making it and they're crushing it. I got a girlfriend of mine, her and her husband are both opera singers um, and they travel the world. They just take turns like and they have their roles that they know are like their big bucks and they make mm. really good money off of them. So like when she gets a call for Queen of the Night, like he drops his stuff and they travel to Amsterdam and Germany wow. and Europe two kids and you know when he gets an opportunity to do La Traviata she drops what she needs to do and they have a non-negotiable you know with things and it works and it doesn't happen it's like 
it's like a Tom Hanks marriage. It's not very, uh, there's not a lot of them out there uh, <laughs> in the opera world, but they do it. And there's people that, you know, they crush it. And other ones are, you know, other people have other jobs and there's some of them are lawyers and tax accountants. And, you know, people are just kind of doing this on the side. And there's something really magical to me about thinking that like in any given day, when I walk by someone, they could be a, like an opera singer, like th that, that yeah. is their true profession. You know, it's, it makes you feel like you're going to walk into the theater and the people are going to be standing up, you know, and, and singing like it's, yeah, it feels exactly. very special to think of that. So oh, yeah. And I, I love pop-up operas. I love scaring people like, in the middle of like, a concert, you know, I love that. Um, it feels like it feels like that could happen in real life. And I think, again, to my point of like highlighting jobs that people don't know are jobs. I mean, I think to, to our generation, I'm the same age as you. They said so much to us, like you can be whatever you want. You can be an actress. But it felt very much like, oh, you can be an opera singer. That's it happens on Broadway. It's one street of the world. And this is where it happens. And you have to be there. And it's, then you think about it and you're like, what is that like? I don't know, maybe a hundred people could be like on the, yeah. you know, famous there. And then you think about it and it's like, no, there's operas happening all over the world and they're, they're up and they're down and they're, they're, you know, this season and then not this season. And then you're flying over here. And I, I just think like, you know, we talk to so many different people and like, when we talk about what is marketing, what is this kind of marketing and how can you take your skills? And I think it's so important to tell kids like, you could, yes, you could be a costume designer for operas, but those don't just happen on one specific street in one specific city, in, you know, in one country in the world. They happen all over the place and there's lots of different opportunities, but you do need to like dig your fingers in a little bit and find those, those things. Gotta work. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's the thing. There is always a hustle. I mean, yeah. especially with singing, like you are, and there's some really great reels out there on Instagram. If you follow like the opera scene where like, you'll see a artist in a costume for their current opera practicing for the next opera. That's interesting. Opera. You know, yeah. You want to keep, keep the momentum going. You never really stop. Um, and even right now, like I'm working on a new package, which is in opera terms, like new songs, learning mm. new repertoire, learning new things. And I'm doing that in between client meetings, you know, I'm at yeah. home with my son and all of a sudden, you know, he sees sheet music and, and you're constantly, you know, I'm not in the road, right. I'm getting ready to get back into that performance mm. street where I am constantly competing and I am constantly doing auditions and management sending me where certain mm -hmm. places and that'll be kind of my life next year. So this year is like mm. the pre-prep for it. Um, and getting back into coaching. Cause like we said earlier in the show, like Luke's now in a stage where he yeah. is capable of, recovering on his own and I'm not having to nest, you know, we're not having to tiptoe around things and we're not having to, you know, I know that life can change at the drop of a dime, but it's not like it was before where, you know, every day was just an unknown. Like we're kind of yeah. in this nice, easy cruise control now. So that's why I'm like, okay, let's get opera back going again. Yeah. Um, you know, the business right now, is, you know, I have like four core clients, but we're really redefining the books and what, you know, what the offerings look like and what experiential marketing looks like. Um, and using Instagram to educate people a little bit more on what experiential marketing is. Um, cause again, there's like a thousand different ways to describe marketing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I have one more question about the opera stuff. I'm fascinated. Sorry. Um, because I, like I said, I worked in experiential, I worked in a very different kind of experiential marketing, which was more interactive digital experiential. Um, and then I worked in um, large corporate events for a long time. So it was a definitely like a, one of those behind the scenes jobs that nobody really knows about or understands. And um, 
you kind of answered it because you said you have management, but is most of the connection that you make, is it word of mouth or is it coming from a management perspective where you're getting, finding out about the next show or are you doing like auditions based on people that you already know? Are you getting calls? Like, I'm just curious how that process kind of works. Yeah. So there's two different kinds of processes. So if you have management, they do a lot of the heavy lifting for you. Mm. So they are constantly seeking out opportunities, roles, competitions, um, based on your performance, your experience, your voice type, your mm-hmm. body type, your height, you know, there's a lot that go into it. Although people don't talk about it, it is very much, um, a physical thing as much as it is a mm-hmm. voice. Um, every time companies, uh, I think it was like eight years ago, they tried to ban, um, like face-to-face, um, auditions and they wanted to focus on the voice only, mm. um, as we kind of went through like this body image revolution and, you know, stop trying to judge people and not saying that you don't have to be pretty, you don't have to be skinny, you don't have to be fat, you don't have to be small or short or tall for an opera role, but there are castings that are very much relatable on appearance. And I'm not talking about like mm. physical like, beauty, I'm talking about like height, um, you know, talking about roles, there's pants roles, pants roles are called pants roles because it's a woman singing in male's part, mm. but it's a woman's part. So it was written in the 1800s for a woman to sing a man's role in a woman's voice. And, you know, we're not changing that. Corgi and Best is a great example of an opera that was just done out here in Opera Carolina. And Corgi and Best is best known for Summertime, which was covered by Elena Del Rey and mm. Sublime. Um, That song originated from the opera, but the opera was written by the Gershwins and their sole ask was that this be performed by an all black cast. Um, Mm -hmm. And primarily a lot of that was resonating because during that time there wasn't an opportunity for, and there wasn't a lot of black opera singers. So it was his will that that's how this opera be done. And there was a time when they were, there was a couple opera companies that wanted to do blackface and that was done um, for other operas. And that's yeah. basically for those who don't know, it's a white person basically like painted brown to fulfill this role. Yeah. Um, but that was, that the Gershwin said, nope, not a chance. This is how we want it written. And that led to the first ever all black cast performed, you know, authentically and the first ever Corgi. Um, so I think, we have to put some of those biases aside when it comes to that and actually let people cast based on how these roles were written. Right. And there's, if you want to redefine opera, then write a new opera. There are tons of new operas out there that cover issues all the way from autism to, you know, non-binary roles to LGBTQ, um, I, you know, roles like there are new operas that are transcending this new time. But mm. when it comes to like old school, like, let it sit, let it be like, you know, right. if it ain't broke, don't fix. Yeah. Um, so going back to the original question about management, you know, the management seeks all that for you, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of us out there that have to do the research. You know, we're mm-hmm. researching competitions on our own. We have Google alerts set up for, you know, mezzo soprano roles. Um, you know, we're submitting our headshots and our sound bites to opera companies at a certain time every year in hopes that, you know, a lot of the way that they do casting is we work, they, the, um, the artistic director works through the management companies. So mm-hmm. they'll pick artists from rosters that are already developed. Um, but I have a lot of friends that are, you know, they're still researching. And for me, um, you know, I have a great voice coach and she does almost what management does, which is why we pay her mm. so, so well. Um, but right. she seeks out things for us all the time. You know, right. we're constantly having conversations with our voice coaches because a lot of them 
are still in the circuit. My voice coach, uh, Victoria Livengood, still goes to the Met. She still sings, you know. I only get her when she's not. That's her side job. Her job is teaching in right. addition to a career in opera. Um, so there's so many different ways that people can go about that. And, you know, for me, it was always locking myself in with the opera company. Um, mm. So anytime I went somewhere, I tried to get into the resident program. So I was on that person's radar, right. um, which led to me not having to travel, um, which is great. But for those who want to get a lot of different roles, you know, management is definitely the way to go, but not required. I know people that are killing it and they're not managed. They're self-managed. So, uh, take us back to your grandparents because <laughs> so I, was I, I, I need to know this story. <laughs> Were they from New I York? Every now and then. Yeah, no, you I love it. Like, I, I don't know. I wasn't really musical or, uh, or you know, creative, no. but I did have you know, my grandmother's grandmother rocket. I need to know. I need to know this story. So your grandparents, were they from New York? Yeah, so they both um, were born and raised in well, New Jersey, New York, um, mm -hmm. and my grandmother was a dancer. Um, you know, through you know, she danced um, and had a beautiful you know pre rockette career, um, doing I think ballet and, and different types of things. And she auditioned for the Rockettes, um, and one was one of the first Rockettes to do the top hat kick down the line. Um, and they had mutual friends. Uh, my grandfather um, they worked in carpentry, so like stagehands. Mm -hmm. So our mm -hmm. family is. Union one stagehand. Um, I believe I still have my card too. I've worked one fly rail. Um, but they, they had met, um, and they had 12 kids. Um, my dad wow. was one of 12. Um, of those 12, the three that were the girl, there's three girls. Um, so I would say like the other, like nine boys, almost all of them went into carpentry stagehand Four of them still work Lincoln center. Um, I've worked, I've, I've worked with the stagehands at Lincoln center. They're a great crew. <laughs> You have probably worked with my uncles and me and my grandfather. Um, they are They're hilarious. really like, I have some of their numbers in my phone. They're such, they're such nice guys. I think again, getting back to this idea of jobs that we don't know are happening. These are good, steady jobs. Like I always tell oh, people, I'm like, you want to go find a nice guy, go find a stagehand. They're such like nice oh, people. Yeah. We used, my dad used to always, um, the joke always used to be that he would have to work a show when he would go out there to visit our family so he could pay for the flight. Cause <laughs> All I have to do is work one show and get like two, three hundred dollars. And I'm yeah. like, okay. So like I started doing that when I went out there and I met my husband <laughs> dating. And I'm like, hey, like I and he got he was uh, had an internship in New York and I went out there. I'm like, hey, I need to go work a show real quick. I need That's to pay so for funny. my flight. That's so um, funny. That's amazing. I love that. But yeah, so but we never had any singers in the family. It was always, you know, dance. Mm. Um, but the the skill in our family was like stagehands, carpentry. Um, you know, my dad, my aunt, no, my aunt, sorry, my grandma was the only one that did dancing, and her sister, my mm -hmm. aunt Pat, did dancing as well. Um, there she was also a rockette. Um, so it was really cool to watch that. But I do remember watching a lot of operas like from behind the stage. Mm -hmm. But I always was like I want to be a dancer. Like I would watch the ballets and the Nutcrackers. Yeah. And, you know, if I had gotten into the middle school, of the arts for dancing, I might've had a wholly different career path right. and, and journey. Yeah. Um, you know, it, that one little middle school audition, which I always tell my friends with kids, like these small little phases in our kids' lives, like completely transcend like their path. Like you can yeah. absolutely, Knight's Tale quote, you can absolutely realign your stars, you know, just because you're going somewhere doesn't mean that that's exactly where you're going to end up. Um, you know, I love a good puzzle and that's kind of how I like to see, you know, what I've done with performing, um, with the opera, I bring that into everyday life. You know, I bring it, I bring in elements of how I raise my kids, you know, what we find is important. Turns out 
when my husband and I were dating, he failed during the wooing stage to mention like his grandma or his mother was a pianist and a, like that she was musical. I'm like, you know, that would have been like really good brownie points in the early days. Like I found that out like after we were engaged, like you didn't want to like mention she was a musician. <laughs> is your son musical? Does he, is he showing signs? He has insane pitch. So I'm not quite sure what he'll do with it. I mean, he has a great, he has a fun desire to like, he loves music. He loves to sing, but like his, pitch is ridiculous like he can match anything and he can match the vacuum cleaner he can match the songs I mean it's you know who knows what he'll do with it but it's you know it's really great for you know remembering things we turn everything into a song you know we're working Mm -hmm. on spelling he can spell Mickey Mouse and Blippi before he can spell his own name (laughs) um I wanted to ask about that a little bit so as a parent I'm a you know I have two boys and we we went, you know, I got divorced and my kids lived through that. And as a parent, you always want to turn every experience, right, into the most positive experience that you can. Yep. What is the relationship between your background in exper- experiential marketing and then taking this experience that is pretty culturally I would say scary, right? Every parent's worst nightmare, right? Yep. To hear that your kid is sick. And then you all, then you have to parent that child through that experience. Yeah. How did you use your background in performance and marketing to, you know, to change that experience for your son? So it was a more positive one if you did that at all. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to swap coffee for wine right now. Uh, <laughs> the good stuff. Yeah. I uh, know. Yeah. So, um, you know, with that being, I mean, first off, I feel in the beginning, he parented me more than I parented him because mm. uh, I was a hot mess. Um, I was completely broken. The first, I, like, you kind of go through those stages of grief. Like, we went through denial. Like, even when they said lymphoma on the call, like, when they told us his diagnosis, I'm like, whew, at least it's not cancer. <laughs> um, it wasn't until like we went into the cancer ward and I'm like, why are they sending us to the cancer ward? Like oh I God. knew, but like my brain was like, good, we've got the bullet there. Like, or it didn't really hit. And then like when they did the surgery and they put the port in and then they said like the word chemotherapy, I was like, oh God, like, you know, your whole world shifted. And he kind of parented us in those early stages because he was showing us that he was fine. Like you know, it sucked and it was scary. And I think my husband was more worried about him losing his hair than anything else. Like there are these like, you know, aesthetics, but then, but then it came to the point where he started understanding a little bit of like, this sucks. Like I hurt or like, I want to do this, but I can't. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm so done going here all the time. So we took our relationship with food and we created our own fun experiences. So probably screwing me down the line for now because now we're getting through where he all breakfasts are Panera breakfasts. But during those stages, <laughs> you know, we had breakfasts, like breakfast eyes. I don't know the right word for that, but we had every came every treatment was a different breakfast. Um and Luke, before he even was diagnosed, had an Instagram account called um Foodie Baby CLT. Um and he would come to all my foodie events and try all the foodie foods and all my girlfriends loved him and restaurants loved having him because it was fun so we kind of took what we had already done before with going to restaurants and you know different places and trying different foods and every treatment was a different food so we would have viva chicken we would have cheesecake factory we would door dash i mean we we door dashed everything um and we brought in really cool foods like nothing boring nothing stupid nothing home packed i'm sure 
it was a terrible decision for my budget, but it really got him excited because he didn't yeah. know what to expect when we get there. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes after treatments, we would go places um, and then we'd start making things. Um, you know, we got into like making homemade pizzas and then we got into making dough and then he got into making sourdough. So like every day was a new creation and a new ex- way for him to experience this different journey that he was going through. You know, he was out of school for three months. So we kept him engaged that way. Um, and now, and then it got to the point where now he goes and sees his friends, you know, all the nurses and the oncologists. And, you know, we make every trip is never like, you know, we're like, Hey, we're going to go see your friends. Hey, we're going to go get some new toys. Hey, you know, they yeah. have so many things and resources, you know, you see the commercials for St. Jude's kids and, and you never truly think it's actually like what, where your donations go to, but it yeah. does all these kids, they get complete utter treatment, great care. They get tons of toys. You know, the parents don't have the burden of the financial responsibilities for these treatments that are going through St. Jude's. Um, you know, it's not like the Sarah McLaughlin Humane Society video where you're like, oh my God, again. <laughs> yeah. Like when they come on and talk about what the parents are actually receiving from these in-kind donations, like that's, that is exactly what we're getting and what we're seeing. So every time we go, we play. And we play and we constantly play and we run around and we make it something that he looks forward to. There's been days where like we didn't have clinic and he was like super devastated. Like, mm. you know, and he knows now, and now that he's getting older, we're starting to explain more. In the very beginning, everything was very like, we're going to go play. We're going to go eat. We're going to go have toys. Now we're kind of like, hey, we have to get medicine and then we'll go do this. Now he's into crystals. That's like his new thing. This little mm, movie. Yeah. Right. Now this. he wants to get he wants to get crystals. There's this awesome crystal store right by the hospital and they know him by name. He comes in, mm-hmm. he puts his hand in the jar and he, <laughs> his eye, he takes out a crystal and they tell him what it is. And so we've kind of moved from food to crystals, but he's learning about the healing powers of crystals and yeah. the affirmations that go with them. So we walk through it and like, he'll get like, you know, an amethyst. And, you know, I said, you know, this is going to help us. So we're not freaked out so we're not feeling trembly so we're not and like he like he'll like he'll if we if he forgets a crystal it's like i mean i have like literally like these beautiful ones right here like i have a bunch too (laughs) olivia too yeah yeah we're we're like crystals are everywhere in our house and i forgot we're not recording this on the video but like you know he holds them and then you show everybody and um so we're now telling him more and explaining more about what he's going through so he's still getting an experience it's less play-based like it was when he was three But now, you know, we're like, hey, like, we just got to get some medicine in your port and then we're done. And then we're going to go and you're going to go to school and it's going to be a normal day. So he he knows now that there's a benefit for him to go. That is, you know, we people always say, like, how do you talk to your kid about cancer? And I don't really think we've had the conversation like, hey, you have cancer Um, because we were told early on, don't tell him that he's sick because it's not contagious. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But, you know, he knows that he is he has, as he puts it he has been chosen to go through this for some reason. And that's all he says, you know, he's like, I've been chosen. And I'm like, okay, like, yes, you have. And that's kind of where we, we try to practice a lot of these, you know, affirmations and intentions and all the concepts that are still pretty, you know, vague for adults, you know, his brain can, can handle it. He knows like setting intentions. He knows we listen to music. We have, you know, certain music we listen to in the car. Um, But he's never been, stressed which is interesting because i am chronic anxiety sufferer so <laughs> you know i what are they the high function anxiety sufferers and he he never through this journey has ever been like 
super, you know, freaked out or not wanting to go. Most of the time when he doesn't want to go, it's just because he wants to stay home and watch TV. It's not because he's scared or he's, you know, fearful of the process. And I do think that creating those foundations of excitement and experiences and, you know, overall like love and care have helped with that. I think that he'll, as he gets older, we'll probably have to go down the line of some of those, you know, those things, but yeah. you know, we can't really explain it. So there's no other way to just, then just teach it to him. You know, I think that it sounds like you have done a great job of explaining to him what was appropriate for that age level, right? Like they always say like, you have to keep iterating on what you teach kids, right? So you don't like start with the sex talk at age four, the way you would at age 12, right? You, you start explaining these things slowly for what is age appropriate. And it sounds like you did an amazing job at that. And then also in creating these systems of like, we're going to door dash, like F the budget right now. We need to create this for him. You were also, yeah, you were also taking something off your plate, which was making dinner, which is a big really exhausting, stressful undertaking. So you, while trying to, you know, celebrate him and give him that experience, we're also removing a little bit of stress from your life, which was giving him a more present mom, a less stressed mom, you know, even as a high anxiety um, sufferer, like you were feeding yourself a little bit, literally and metaphorically, and giving him a little bit more of yourself in that moment. And so it was this really beautiful system that worked for the whole family of creating, because you also probably needed that ritual and you also probably needed that routine and to know what was going to happen next, because I don't have children myself, but the idea of sort of being in this abyss where you're falling and your child is, you know, not well and is suffering, that is a really that could be a really confusing space. And so to be like, this is what we're going to do first. This is what we're going to do next. Not only was it giving him that routine, but it was giving you, and then you were creating a better parent system for him that was allowing him to be like, I guess this is normal. Sorry. No, I was going to say, and now he's taken it to like where he is almost the caretaker because now he's interested in doctor's toys and, and things that he sees at the clinic and right. now he's taking care of like his toys and his things. So he's, he's almost, you know, continuing what we started, but now he's doing it for, you know, where his imagination leads him. Yeah. And what a testament, the fact that he didn't have stress throughout this, what a testament to the kick-ass parent that you are and that your husband is that you but that's exactly what you do right your your like personal brand is is creating experiences right yeah and you did that for your son and that's the best gift you could give him and I guarantee he'll probably look back on these times that for you was heartbreaking and the a mother's worst nightmare and for him was like a a wonderful time he got to spend a lot of time with mom and dad and have great food and get takeout yeah yeah and there was I you know there was a lot of trying to find the positive and all this. And, and I told my parents, I said, you know, there's, you know, the pandemic gave parents a chance to spend extra time with family and their kids, but we kind of got an extension of that where, yeah. you know, I try to look, cause sometimes like Mondays, I don't have a child. I don't have childcare on Mondays. So it's mm-hmm. always like the most stressful time for me balancing my job and him and all this stuff. So I'm always like transparent, but I always kind of whenever I get to like that level, like DEFCON 10, where I'm like about to just like throw everything in the filing cabinet and set it on fire, I kind of remind myself like, okay, like hold tight. Like we have a candle lit in the house. Like we have TV on, we have food. Like I am spending time in my pajamas with my kid. Like 
work can wait like yeah. and whatever is on fire like so let it burn and yeah. you know i'm never going to get this time back because i'm pretty sure the way that his little fierce you know personality is when he's in middle school like he's going to be on his own and he's not going to yeah. be mom because he's like you know this tough kid so i'm like <laughs> let's just bask in the present and focus on what is good and that that happens a lot because we we get so into this momentum of succeeding and um and i've been seeing it a ton online about like rest and mm -hmm. the you know the counterculture that is you know if you're not busy you're lazy yeah and if you're not doing something you're failing and yeah. it's been such a trend lately that i've seen and even my own life where like my company is not busy right now because that was my choice. I chose to not take right. on new clients for January and February so I can focus on building my business up and building it strong. And it took a while where I was constantly like talking to my husband, like, Oh, like I know I'm not contributing as much as I used to, but like there was a feeling of shame and guilt and, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, because I wasn't moving forward, I thought I was moving backwards. Yeah. And I had to remind myself a lot, like I'm getting this chance with my son that no parent usually gets when they're four. Yeah. Like yeah. kids are in school full time when they're not in school, they're at play dates when they're not at play yeah. dates, they're in extracurriculars. And, you know, we have been gifted this time where he has to slow down. Like he physically cannot do everything that a normal four year old can do, yeah. which lets us have the time at home. Yeah. Um, and that was a huge learning curve. But once I figured it out, still figuring it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really was excited about it and the chance that we get to, spend and when my husband travels you know we do it when as soon as brent leaves for a week for work you know we we go out you know back on dinner dates we have movie yeah. picnics we you know it's something for him to look forward to he gets to sleep in mom's bed that's a huge deal for him mm -hmm. um, mostly for me because he sleeps upstairs and i'm downstairs so i'm like oh he's cool he's right here <laughs> um, but you know we we do that all the time to take away the anxiety of change yeah, yeah. um because I think he and most people adapt better with change when there's new things introduced. Yeah. Look forward to I am so curious to see who he becomes between the music and the cooking and the medical stuff, because I think of uh, Olivia has a very, uh, somebody that's very important to Olivia's family had childhood cancer and she is a nurse. Like she became yeah. a nurse because she was like, this is so I, the, the experiences she had touched her so much. So you know, it's so fascinating to see, like you said, he's getting into the, he's interested in doctor tools. Like, and of course they're four, like, you know, he's four, right. like it's, you don't know who they're going to be, but they kind of are who they are. He taught nursery school for a while and they kind of are who they are at when oh, they yeah. come out. And, I, and so I'm just so curious to see, like, I, I'm excited to watch you grow and, and what you do in your career, but also to like, get to sort of like, you know, in 18 years, know who this little person is going to be and where he's going to go because, there's a lot of um, interesting infusions that you've put in there, like with the, with the singing and the, and the food and the medical. So I'm curious. Yeah. And none of it would have happened without the fresh starts. I mean, yeah. I feel there is no, there should never be a negative stigma on starting over. I think it's a huge opportunity that we get. Um, so when yeah. it comes to, and maybe this is the answer to the question you're going to ask, but like, I think, you know, when given the opportunity to, to restart or to make a clean break from something, to embrace it and see what you can bring to that fresh start to yeah. then 
create a new beginning and a new chapter and a new story because none of what I just talked about would have been possible if life hadn't just stopped, you know, for whatever reason it was, right. we would have, I would have never had to adapt. And yeah. without that adaption, there wouldn't be this amazing life that we're creating right now. I love that. I have a question for you before we let you go. If somebody is going through what you went through and you're in the hospital with your kid, what is the best way for a friend to support you? Like, what is a text that you got or what is something that like somebody just did that was so simple that just made you feel seen during like the hardest time in your life? So this is such a great question because it gets said, it gets tossed around a lot. And, you know, what can we do? How can we help? Mm -hmm. Um, and it was, it, it really showed the colors of a lot of people, um, you know, going through stages of pregnancy, going through stages of marriage, you get friends and you lose friends. You find the ones that like to go out and get cocktails with you. Mm -hmm. Then you got pregnant and they went away. You yeah. became the person that would always throw really awesome events and stay out late and have the post event. And then you had a child people stay and people go. And when it came to Luke's diagnosis, people stayed and people go. Yeah. And the biggest thing for me that meant the most wasn't the DoorDash gift cards. It wasn't the, you know, the gift baskets or the, you know, it was the check-ins. It was the being there now. It's the people that I have lunch with now. It's the people that stayed when they could go. They didn't understand how to best take care of me. They didn't know how to best stay my friend. They didn't know what the best thing to do was. So they were just there. And all they did was live their lives. And all they did was do what they do best, which was being a friend and being a supporter and a family member. So yeah, they weren't there every day, every week during like the tough parts, but they were there with the check-ins, the haze, how are you doings? But being there when the hard part is over or like the course gets a little steadier, like I needed people now probably more than I did then because you're in fight or flight. Mm. And when change happens, you're survival modes. And I did appreciate all the door dashes and the food. Like that made my life hella easy. <laughs> and, you know, it was great to, you know, when I did fundraisers, people would support and donate. Like that was wonderful. And I felt good about giving back because we were able to financially give back when we were also in need. Um, but for me, it's just staying constant. And, you know, if somebody who's listening has a friend going through this and they don't know what to tell you, just stay put, just be there, be mm -hmm. present, live your life, work your job. But when they reach out and say, hey, do you want to go grab some wine? Hey, do you want to grab dinner? Hey, do you want to go for a walk? Then being like, perfect, let's go. Like just being on the other line to the call yeah. is what mm -hmm. I think is the most important thing for people to be aware of because eventually you reach out and eventually you do feel comfortable enough to get mm -hmm. back into it. There were a lot of people that when I reached out didn't you know, put the phone back up or they moved or their life moved on and they're living a different life now. And they didn't take you in their suitcase with you. And it's, it's sad, but it also lets time be more free for the people that did mm -hmm. take you with them and that, yeah. that did keep thinking about you. And, and those are the things that I think I valued the most was the people who are present now, the people who yeah. 
you know, they just, they stayed and they waited. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So um, that's really, really great advice. Mm -hmm. So the last question we always ask people the most fun, what was the last thing that you ate and truly loved? Uh, Pizza and beer. Always. Amazing. (laughs) Great combination. Really? I'm always so present when, and I just got, uh, I just finished off a dry January. Um, and I still had like an NA, I had like a NA, um, athletic beer and it's still just the same. Like I, I love pizza. I'm so present whenever I eat pizza, (laughs) pizza. um, but yeah, I always, I just love the, there's just something nostalgic about it. I feel like not me, the beer part, but like, you know, like, and it, it, it may, yeah, there is a nostalgia about like growing up and going to see baseball games and having a beer mm-hmm. pizza or, you know, after, you know, a tough day of work and you're early, like, you know, your early thirties, mm-hmm. like yeah. it's, it's a comfort food. It's a cheap date food. I, I love that. Love it. Well, I Megan, ate a lot of that during Luke's treatment. <laughs> I'm <laughs> <Yeah>. sure. <laughs> comfort a lot food. Of pizza during those initial stages and after great opera performances too. It's, yeah, it's, that's, it's, it's a good perfect. combination. It's a good combination. Perfect meal. Well, we're so excited that we connected with you and thank you mm-hmm. for your vulnerability and sharing your story. And, you know, one of the platforms that we kind of hammer home over time and again is we need to start talking about this stuff, right? We need to start talking about the stuff we don't talk about. What is it like to get a cancer diagnosis for your kid? And what is it like to be an opera singer? What is it like to start a marketing company? All these things, they're all brave decisions. And so we're super proud of you for making the brave decisions and thank you for sharing them. And we know that your story is going to impact so many people and that Luke is at the just beginning of his story. And there's so many, we're getting so excited to see him and everything he does. So thank you for taking the time today and uh, sharing your fresh starts. Thank you for listening to today's story. We're always here and we're proud of you. Until next time, brave one. A Fresh Story is brought to you by Fresh Starts Registry, the first and only platform for everything you need to start again. You can read the show notes and learn more about today's episode at freshstartsregistry.com slash podcast. As always, we want to remind our listeners that while we strive to provide accurate and helpful information, we are not medical doctors or mental health professionals. We want to remind you all that the information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for professional advice. We highly recommend consulting a qualified healthcare or mental health professional for any concerns or questions you may have. Remember, we are a podcast, but we are not licensed medical professionals. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any medical decisions. And as a gentle reminder, all opinions are our guests and do not necessarily reflect our own.